I said, get the left, get the middle, get the right, all at one table with a bunch of us moms, and we'll set you all straight because you've got to listen. If, if we're not asking a patient on Medicare to fork out $12,000 in the beginning of a fiscal year before they hit their deductible, they can actually eat, they can pay for their medication, they can put gas in the car. Welcome to our podcast about biotechnology breakthroughs, the DNA of all living things, and the DNA of scientists, companies, and patients who make miracles happen. I'm Jim Greenwood, and you're listening to I Am Bio. Today, we're broadcasting from the nation's capital. We're at Bio's annual Patient and Health Advocacy Summit, where 350 patient advocates have convened to share ideas about how to bring hope to patients who are suffering. Imagine you're a mother and give birth to fraternal twins. One is meeting all of her developmental milestones and is healthy. The other has trouble sitting up straight and then is diagnosed with flat head syndrome and intellectual disabilities and autism and epilepsy. So you go from doctor to doctor trying to figure out how one child can have so many serious medical problems. And your questions are met with sympathetic shrugs. Now, for the first time, scientists have the ability to provide answers. The mapping of the human genome in 2003 gave biotech researchers a new roadmap of human DNA in the body. And in today's era of personalized medicine, Genomic sequencing makes it possible for patients to end their diagnostic odysseys by identifying a gene mutation that can cause multiple problems. Our first guest, she started her own small patient advocacy organization in Houston, Texas from scratch. And now it's growing in numbers and in clout. Only this supermom didn't organize her group around a particular disease. She's pioneering a new trend of patient advocacy organizations that form around a gene mutation. Monica Weldon left her job as a teacher to form the Bridge the Gap Foundation after her son Beckett was diagnosed with the SYNGAP1 gene mutation back in 2012. Now she's raising money and awareness for hundreds of SYNGAP families. It's really a tough mutation. So Monica, tell us what it's all about. Well, at first, we didn't know much about it. There was one clinical paper that said it caused intellectual disability. And as we kind of went through our journey uh, to, to now, we now know that it is an epilepsy gene. 97, if not 100% of our patients probably will present with some, some form of epilepsy or combination of epilepsies. Uh, the intellectual disability component is mild to severe. And we've now been ranked uh, one of the top two single gene mutations linked to autism in the world. And the prevalence of this is probably going to be close to that similar to Fragile X. Um, there's a lot of behavior issues. Uh, our kids are nonverbal for the most part, or we have a spectrum. So it's a spectrum disorder of all these different symptoms. So you've been a, a real fighting mom for, for this little boy. Um, you took him to 19 different specialists. Um, and as you said, they found he had intellectual disabilities uh, and a form of autism. Um, then he was four and a half. You found out he had this epilepsy gene. And after that diagnosis, you finally enrolled him in a sleep study. 
Well, uh, yeah, it, it, our journey, it was like we lived in doctor's offices and evaluations and, uh, you know, the list goes on to, I, I think I've seen four neurologists till I got one, you know, that listened um, because at 14 months, I, I thought I noticed something that looked like a myoclonic seizure, which is like a blinking or a jerk type seizure. And they chalked it up to being an infantile, like a, an, inf an infant uh, startle reflex. And I was like, but he's not an infant. He's 14 months. And so it's just that mom gut. And I just kept persisting. And after I waited 14 months to get into an appointment uh, to have him evaluated for autism at, at uh, Texas Children's, they give him, gave him the diagnosis of PDNOS, which is on the autism spectrum, and then um, uh, developmental delay and intellectual disability. Did they recognize it as a genetic problem at that point? At that point, they only suspected. You know, the human genome was just wrapping up, and they were actually starting to target genes. And so they sent me uh, directly from, you know, the Meyer Center, where they uh, evaluated him for autism to genetics. The doctor basically said, you know, well, your insurance probably won't cover this test. And, and I'm thinking, well, okay, well, how much could it be? And he said, well, this is only research basis only. We can try to get your insurance to cover it, which they ended up covering only a very small portion. I had to go take a loan out of the bank because I had to know. And he only gave me a 20% chance of knowing what this gene, you know, that they'd ever find a gene mutation or something significant. So those were the most excruciating 14 months I had to wait. You've learned a lot as a mother to uh, to understand this, and it's it's really quite admirable and and amazing. So, that, that at what point did you realize you needed to start some kind of a patient group and and work with other parents of other kids? Oh well, when I came in after Beckett was diagnosed to the to the genetics appointment they scheduled for us after they found the Syngap1 gene. The first question to, to my doctor was, what, what, what do you know about this? What is, what is my son's prognosis? Is he going to die? Is he going to be sick and disabled? Is he ever going to, you know, uh, be able to live on his own? And this doctor, you know, really, I mean, I, and I love him, but with a helpless look in his face, he goes, this is all we have. This, he handed me one paper. And it, it, all we know is this gene causes intellectual disability. And that was in 2012. I was thinking, this is the 21st century. Why do we not know more about this? You just did the whole, you know, you did the whole genome of the, the human. Why don't we know? Of course, this impatient mom, you know, trying to figure out why, you know, you go to the only people who are supposed to know. This was probably the most helpless time I've ever experienced in my life, being a mother, turning over every rock. Uh, every corner, every hidden space to try to find answers. So I just thought to myself, my background actually is science, and I it was just bugging me that I had to figure this out. I could not let this child live this quality of life that he has uh, without doing nothing. I had to do something. And, the, and one of the researchers that I found on uh, the paper that they had given me, I reached out to him, and he said, you need to start an organization. So how many families have you found uh, with kids with this condition to form your, your organization? At first, we started out with three people from a Facebook group because one, one reached out to me through my blog, and she goes, well, we need to start a Facebook group. So we started with three people, and then by the time we started the organization, uh, we ended up with 24 families. And um, now, currently, uh, we have about 350 
plus patients that are documented in, in published literature. And what are your goals? What do you want to accomplish? Well, one of the biggest goals that we have is, of course, to find more patients. And genetic testing is one of those ways um, to do that, raising awareness and telling our story, but then also to build capacity with our research. And everywhere I go where there's researchers, I go shopping. I go shopping for researchers. I said, this is what we have. Would you be interested? We ended up winning a grant with the National Organization of Rare Disorders that was funded by a grant from the FDA to create our very first SYNGAP-1 MRD-5 natural history study and patient registry. And when we did that two years ago, this is when we started getting the attention of researchers because, uh, you know, unbeknownst to me, I didn't realize you needed that kind of data. Now we have 12 labs in the world working on this with hundreds of different types of uh uh, projects going on. So you mentioned policy, and I think you, you met with your congressman recently. Um, you know, policy is a big issue for us at Bio. It's what we do. And and I always say that it's a it, it's a really frustrating time right now because the, the holy grail would be to, to be able to, to replace the genes in your son's body with the correct gene, the, the, the unmutated gene, and have the, the, his body make the proteins that he needs for a real treatment, if not a cure. Um, and at the same time, you know, we're facing all this political headwind. The industry is under a lot of attack, uh, largely because people have these high deductibles and they, they're mad about the inability to afford the drugs they need. So give us your thoughts about policy. You, you from, from the perspective of a mom uh, like yourself, who's a, a force of nature, by the way, <laughs> um, working on behalf of your son. It, it, that, yes, it, it's incredibly concerning to me because I see what... Innovation and policy needs to happen, and and people need to come to the table. You know, I'm from Texas, so uh, my my congressional leaders actually have been very supportive of lo a lot of the legislation that we've put across their desk. I think congressional leaders need to understand it is not a left, right, middle, center, black, blue, green, purple, whatever. Disease affects everyone. And I believe inserting our patient voice into the research has changed it and accelerated it. Inserting our voice into the regulatory process. You've got families suffering out there. Uh, they're taxpayers, right? You've got families, though, who cannot contribute to society because they aren't allowed to work because they're taken uh, back home to take care of their loved ones living on a shoestring budget. That's not helping the economy either. There will be companies who look at this and say, we, may, we, ha we might have the technology to be able to help out here. Um, they're going to have to raise money. They're going to have to go to venture capitalists, the venture capitalists who, who fund these kinds of small startup companies that do this kind of work. Um, we can be pretty sure that there's a, there's a significant chance that they'll fail. Um, and, and then if they succeed, and to your great joy and delight, um, they're going to have to be reimbursed in a way that is, is, it keeps the ball rolling into the next project and the next project. And now you have organizations like ICER, and I think you're familiar with them, who sort of on their own decide what a drug is worth. Now, I know a treatment or a cure for your son, it will be invaluable. But the question really becomes is who's going to set the price for that? Is it the company that finally makes the, the discovery or is it going to be government or is it going to be ICER? You know, I know there's a, a problem right now with how you value uh, drugs, and then, of course, the price is set on that particular value. But when you are not creating an, a, a level playing field 
for each one of those diseases, you are doing a disservice to that community. For instance, my son, you know, I, I think the quality formula that they use uh, is great for, for common diseases. But when you're talking about these huge, expensive gene therapies, uh, you can't use a baseline of a normal, average, healthy person because my son wasn't born healthy. You have to base his quality of life on where he is and then go up from there. I think the patient voice needs to be uncertain in policy. It needs to be inserted. I, just like I told my congressional leader, I said, get the left, get the middle, get the right, all at one table with a bunch of us moms, and we'll set you all straight because you've got to listen. It doesn't matter about, it doesn't matter how or who you vote. You have to start focusing on what's best for your human life, basically. You've we got had to value a, that. We had to talk to a, a dad who uh, has two sons who received gene therapy for a condition that was causing them to go blind. Uh, and it wasn't, it, it's not an inexpensive, you know, these gene therapies um, are not going to be inexpensive. But what he said is, you know, think about the, what, what how much money are we saving because they can drive themselves and nobody's going to have to drive them for the rest of their lives. They'll be able to work and earn money for the rest of their lives. They won't have to be have a Braille teacher. So there's so many um, uh, ways in which these treatments uh, enhance their um, uh, the value of the patients to society, and that has to be considered too. So um, listen, thank you for everything you've done. You said that the, the parent's voice has to be inserted. I, I have a sneaking suspicion that um, if, 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 if your thoughts are not inserted, you're going to knock doors down and, and insert them yourself. So, <laughs> I so, do. Uh, I do a lot of elbow moves. <laughs> I do believe that there are bad actors in any industry. And unfortunately for us, those who have behaved in a bad way in our industry have managed to paint that brush over the whole industry. And we all need to fix that. So egregious price increases, egregious patent extensions, Things that just don't make sense anymore should not be done. Our next guest is a biotechnology industry veteran and a longtime warrior in the patient advocacy trenches, and my friend. Paul Hastings is the CEO of Encarta Therapeutics in South San Francisco. His company is dedicated to realizing the potential of natural killer cells for the treatment of cancer. The technology helps cancer patients own immune cells search out and destroy tumor cells. Paul is also BIOS Vice Chairman, the co-chair of BIOS Patient Advocacy Committee, and the co-host of the Bio Patient and Health Advocacy Summit. Welcome to I Am Bio. Thank you. You've dedicated so much of your career to advocacy on behalf of patients. Is part of the reason for that because very early in your life, you were a patient? Yes, absolutely. I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease when I was 13 years old. And I've been working with patients with Crohn's, colitis, other inflammatory bowel disorders uh, for the last 35 years, running a patient advocacy organization. So it's something that's near and dear to my heart. How prevalent is the disease? My, my best friend suffers from the same disease. Yeah, it's um, when I was diagnosed, it was 30,000 patients per year were diagnosed with Crohn's disease. I don't know what the numbers are today, but it's very unusual to meet somebody who doesn't have one or more family members affected. I know you have a camp for kids uh, with these kinds of conditions. Tell us about that. Our camp has been in existence for 30 plus years. It's called Youth Rally and it's for 
11 to 18-year-olds who can actually come to a summer camp once a year and be around 150 other kids that all have different diagnoses of the bowel and bladder so they can actually feel like they're with other folks that are just like them and, and that for that one week of the year, they're actually normal. Yeah, so you know, it takes not, the stigma out of it. Makes it takes feel, the stigma out of it. Allows they're not them alone. To, they're not alone. They're, they're with other kids that have the same issues. They can have open discussions about those issues, whereas when they're back at home, it's somewhat difficult sometimes to bring up that subject with other friends who don't may not understand uh, what they have. So it's a great um, thing for these kids to be able to go to this camp, and it's a passion of mine. The role or the relationship between the patient and drug innovators um, has really changed over the over decades. When I think back, I think of um, the model sort of being that the, the big pharma companies would uh, pay patient groups a lot of money, and then they would sort of expect the patients to do their bidding, come out and defend us in legislative bodies and so forth. Um, and that's really uh, a passe model. Um, so let's talk about what, what does patient-centered drug development and review mean? What is, is your vision for how the relationship between the patient and, uh, and the drug innovators and the FDA should be? I've been proud to be the co-chair of the Patient Advocacy Full Board Committee at Bio, and it's a committee where CEOs are, are very interested in that connection with patients, and it's a connection that we are um, absolutely unique in. There's no other organization in our industry that has this kind of relationship with patients. One of the things we cannot ever do is put ourselves, the industry, between the patient and the payer or the patient and the government or the patient and somebody else. We want to advocate for them. So rather than ask them to do our bidding, we need to provide a service for them to help them be able to do their own bidding. We have access to resources that they don't have, but we need to do that in a way where they're viewed as objective and um, independent uh, from us. So let's talk about patient-centered drug development. Um, sort of the old model, um, it's a little bit of an oversimplification, but company says, I've got, I have this molecule, I think it'll do something for this patient, let's develop it, and then let's, let's uh, market it and see if that's what the patient wanted. Um, but now we're kind of reversing that process, right? It's Well, I wouldn't say it's reversed, but what I would say is that we're starting to get patients involved earlier and earlier, not just in drug development, but in drug discovery. I went to a dinner last night with a group of patient advocates, and I sat next to somebody last night whose organization represents the patients who will be enrolled in our, one of our very first clinical trials. So people with hepatocellular carcinoma, liver cancer, for example. And... Um, we are about to write the protocol for that study. And what I was speaking to that patient advocacy organization about last night was, let's get together, let's have you review our protocol, let's have you tell us whether the outcomes that we're looking for in this trial are outcomes that are relevant to patients. And getting them involved that early is uh, what patient-focused drug development is all about. In fact, the, the FDA has had a whole series of meetings where they've been bringing in patients and asking them questions about what it is they're looking for in terms of a treatment. Talk a little bit about that process at the FDA. Yeah, hats off to the entire FDA staff because, you know, we're trained as healthcare professionals um, to treat patients. And in many instances, we're trained to not get too close, like to be objective with patients. And so in the past, I think the FDA had an attitude towards patients which was less intimate, if you will. And now these division directors and reviewers are actually sitting down with patients and hearing about what patients' needs are. And 
for a patient organization, the sophistication levels have just gone through the roof there. These guys know as much about drug development as we do. And so they're able to sit with the FDA and say, hey, what about this measurement tool? Or what about that measurement tool? And why aren't you, you know, why are you still looking at this outcome that was an outcome that was used to judge, say, pain medications 30 years ago when the whole field has changed? You should be looking at a different outcome, one that's more relevant. And the FDA has been extremely open-minded into listening to that. So these patient-reported outcomes are built into the protocol. They're built into the analysis. Many times they're secondary endpoints for the clinical trial. Uh, the field is, is moving in a, in a beautiful direction. You spoke earlier about the, the fact that we don't want to get between the patients and the payers. Mm-hmm. There's always been some tension involved in that because from the innovator's point of view, we know that uh, some of the um, proposals that would uh, impose price controls of one kind or another um, will really dampen innovation. It will, it will, it will cause our, our investors to uh, be concerned that they may never get their investment back. Uh, in those in those cases, when a drug actually does uh, get approved by the FDA, um, and so um, we've kind of wanted patient groups to recognize that and speak about that. But the patient groups also know that uh, one of the things that some of their patients are concerned about is is their ability to financially afford the, the medicines. So there's always been that tension, and it seems to me that the um, that one of the, the, the ways that we can um, get past that is focusing on the patient's out-of-pocket cost. If we can say to, to Congress, instead of you know, trying to, to bring in price controls that are used in, in Europe where they don't have a lot of innovation, uh, how about thinking about the patient first and solving the, the problem of the patient's out-of-pocket costs? And right now we're trying to do that in the Medicare Part D program where 45 million beneficiaries, a million of them are paying more than $3,000 a year from out of their pockets. And some of them are paying 5,000, 7,000, 10,000, 12,000. Now I've said that, that, that that's just immoral. It's just wrong to ever uh, have a situation where a patient cannot afford uh, the medicine that he or she needs because of, of what's required to come from their pockets. And particularly in for people who have paid into Medicare all their lives, and they're living frequently on fixed and limited incomes, uh, and they just don't have that kind of money. So we're working to get Congress to try to put a, a limit of something like $200 a month out-of-pocket costs for the, for the beneficiaries. And that solves a lot of problems because not only is it the right thing for the patients, it enables them to not have to worry about access. They can actually eat if, you, if, if we're not asking a patient on Medicare to fork out $12,000 in the beginning of a fiscal year um, before they hit their deductible. They can actually eat, they can pay for their medication, they can put gas in the car and focus on activities of daily living versus, oh shoot, how am I gonna pay for my drugs? We don't have a president that actually is listening to data right now. Um, His point of view on patient out-of-pocket costs is patients ought to have skin in the game. I'm not sure that he even thinks about patients when he's looking at drug pricing. And so the ultimate end user is not being considered here. It's like, let's attack the industry. Let's get them to lower their prices. Let's not worry about the PBMs right now, the pharmacy benefit managers and the insurance companies. And I think that's the wrong way to look at this. One has to look at the whole ecosystem and one has to think about the ultimate person who's going to uh, benefit or not benefit is the patient. And you are... um a classic example of someone who's devoted his life to 
the focus on the patients um, when it was less fashionable. And you have this passion, you know why you're doing it, and yet we look at the polls and we see that our industry, as it, it's, we're, we're, we're considered lower than, I think, tobacco companies and, and, and gun runners and so many uh, politicians and so many stories in the media um, portray a picture of our industry as um, so negatively compared when you, in contrast to all the good we're trying to do. Yeah, it's easily overcome when you're, when you're actually running an emerging company. So for me, the way to disarm someone in Congress uh, about our reputation is to invite them to my company and to meet the scientists that are working on these therapies, who many of whom are also patients, by the way, many of whom are dealing with patient copays at the pharmacy counter, uh, and many of whom are not making millions of dollars a year being biotech research and development scientists. That, that, that's a misperception. Um, so. So that helps. Um, I, I do believe that there are bad actors in any industry. And unfortunately for us, those who have behaved in a bad way in our industry have managed to paint that brush over the whole industry. And we all need to fix that. So egregious price increases, egregious patent extensions, things that just don't make sense anymore should not be done. And there, our reputation, I think, will get better. And I think the other thing we need to do in biotech is without insulting any other part of our business. So you have big pharmaceutical companies and you have emerging biotech companies. We need to represent ourselves as emerging companies in what we do and fight for things that allow innovation to get to patients. The, our pharmaceutical counterparts will like that, but what we don't wanna do is defend price increases or defend you know, um, patent extensions that, that that don't make sense. We need to worry about innovation and patience. And when you focus on that and tell people that's what you're focused on, I think our reputation is gonna turn. I think people are gonna understand what we do. What is important and what's never gonna go away is that what we do costs a lot of money, right? So too, the last company I ran, I raised a billion dollars and four of the candidates in the pipeline failed. So a billion dollars went, went down the tube and some of those same investors have invested in our new company because they understand that there are risks involved in drug discovery and development, and they're and 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 one hit, you know, can can do very well for an investor. But without that kind of ecosystem, we won't be able to do what we're doing. I think there are three things that kind of turn people off about the industry. Um, one of them is the experience that they have with their out-of-pocket costs, and we've mm -hmm. talked about that yep. and how we want to fix that. And I want to fix that not only in the Medicare market but in the commercial market. When you can't afford the deductible and you don't take your medicine, you just get sick. You get hospitalized, and it costs the healthcare system money. So that that's problem one. Problem two is, as you just referenced, uh, people get annoyed at the constant price increases. Why did this drug cost X dollars in you know, five years ago, and now it costs two X dollars? And they don't really see the value of that. And as you've referenced, that's not something we want to buy. Want to defend these constant price increases. The other thing that can worry people is the sometimes the sticker price. You see these products come out with these very high prices. And um, and there's a reason for that, and you just you just alluded to it, which is nine times out of ten we fail, uh, and so it's the the basic economics are high risk, high reward. So those those investors that lost a billion dollars in your last company, um, that that was not entirely unexpected. I don't mean about your company, but that they know that they lose money a lot in this sector, 
Uh, and so they kind of have to make it up when, when a drug finally is approved and does work. And that's sometimes reflected in the launch price of the drug. And, mm -hmm. and it's in, important for people to understand that, that, um, that, there's, that these prices are not just arbitrarily set high, they're the result of the economics of what we're doing. And then, of course, those prices, the launch prices are not there forever. They eventually, the patent runs out. And, right. uh, and then the, 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 the price goes down and society has that forever. And that's where we need to be honest with ourselves and with the patients and with Congress. And I will, I'll put it on the record here that if our natural killer cells make it to the marketplace and get in patients and help patients be, have their cancer treated with our natural killer cells, when the patent expires on those natural killer cells, it's our job to have the next innovation, the next natural killer cell combined with a T cell or the next natural killer cell uh, that's engineered in a slightly different way. So we're, we're, it's our responsibility to have the next innovation and to allow our last innovation to have its patents expire and be replaced by a biosimilar cell therapy, which don't exist today because we don't have cell therapies that have been out there that long, but there will be. And we should embrace that. And the concept of holding on to patents on old drugs and keeping them out there forever and ever and ever, it's wrong. And we and so so we have to be constantly discovering and innovating new therapies. And by the way, that's expensive. So even if you have a drug on the market and you're continuing to research other drugs, that's expensive. So, so investors understand that. Um, I think people, the general public, and particularly Congress needs to understand investors and what investors' needs are too, because without investors, we don't have a marketplace for anybody on Wall Street to trade. So there's a law called the Hatch-Waxman, as you're very yep. familiar with it. It was written to basically uh, sort out how do we um, make sure that those who take the risk and, and actually succeed in making a drug uh, that's beneficial to patients can be rewarded and get their money back and so that they can invest that in the next drug, and yet eventually um, the drug goes down in price, and that's so it becomes genericized, and that's and that's the way it works. And ninety percent of the of the prescriptions that are being written now are generic. So that the social compact has been working, and it's been working pretty darn well. Well, and Hatch Waxman is, by the way, one of those great bipartisan situations that we used to have in Congress, and that's for small molecules, for pills, things that you can make a pill out of. That doesn't apply to biologics, which are all the new medications that people are complaining about the expense of are biologics. They cost more to make and they tend to work better and they tend to be more specific. And we need to have a Hatch-Waxman for biologics. And that's something we're working on today. Right now in the biosimilars area where someone does come up with a biosimilar that's um, like a generic for a protein, in many instances, those drugs are just as expensive as the branded drugs. We need to fix that. We need to help fix that so that we have that, that ecosystem, that social compact also for our biologics. Well, Paul, thanks for chatting with me today. Thank you for your lifelong career in, in finding treatments for patients. Thank you for your leadership as a patient advocate and uh, for your friendship. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. The genomic revolution has begun. We now have the tools to identify and repair broken genes to cure disease. It's the greatest advance in medical history. It's already transforming drug development. We used to make treatments. Now we're working on cures. 
for the 1.7 million men and women of the U.S. biotechnology industry who've committed so much of our lives to medical innovation, mapping the human genome was the eureka of our dreams. The medicines it will enable us to discover will end untold suffering, save millions of lives, and eradicate hundreds of deadly diseases that have plagued the human race for centuries. It's a troubling reality that a growing number of U.S. politicians believe this future isn't worth the price. No matter that three of the Fortune 10 companies right now are health insurers and pharmacy benefit managers raking in record profits. The populists are essentially saying these poor payers can't afford the astonishing medical advances on our doorstep. They want to wield the blunt instrument of government price setting to slash biotech profits right as we step into a new era of unimaginable cures. Europe used to lead the world in biomedical investment. Our friends across the pond used to invest 24% more in drug R&D than U.S. companies. Then the voices of socialism went out and Europeans decided to let their governments set drug prices instead of the market. By 2015, European companies had fallen 40% behind their U.S. counterparts in biopharmaceutical R&D. Today, because of our ecosystem, American companies don't just produce more new medicines than anyone else, we produce more than everyone else combined. Nearly 60% of all new drugs are invented in our country. American biotech companies lead the world. Why would we unilaterally surrender our global leadership and follow Europe's lead? Some populist politicians are now on the record saying fewer medicines at lower cost is worth it. Well, tell that to the millions of people who won't be cured because politicians have decided to divert that research money elsewhere. The populist's approach isn't pro-patient, it's anti-biotech, and it's a boondoggle for insurers. The saddest thing of all is that the populists aren't even fighting to lower the patient's costs. Their plan is to lower wholesale costs and hope and pray that insurers will lower deductibles in response. Well, newsflash, they won't. America, there is a better way. Starting with the Medicare program, Congress should cap what patients are forced to pay out of their own pocket at the pharmacy. If elected officials want to help their constituents by controlling a drug's price, it should be the patient's price. And patients stuck in high-deductible plans should be allowed to pay that deductible in installments over 12 months, not all at the beginning of the year. That way, they can actually get their medicine. That way, they can afford to eat. This approach isn't socialism, but what it will do is keep the pipeline of life-saving breakthroughs flowing from American labs. And best of all, it will help ensure patients can access them when they do. Well, that's all for today. Don't forget to rate us on your podcast player. And if you like what you heard, subscribe and share with your friends. On our next episode, we're going to highlight a new breakthrough for sickle cell disease and learn about the struggles of courageous patients who are trying to access urgently needed care. It's no coincidence that the biotech company that finally discovered a way to attack the underlying cause of this disease has made diversity inclusion its North Star. Need some very special folks sickle cell saviors on the next I Am Bio.